a lot of these fish you're hand stripping because since they're ambush predators and they're sitting in the jetty like the lingcod are just sitting there a lot of times in the rocks looking up and something goes over and they lunge out get it and then they want to get right back into the rocks flare their fins out and so when you get those things on you got to hand strip them hard that was brian morrow's describing what it's like to catch lingcod out of the jetty this is episode 97 of the wet fly swing fly fishing show Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. I have 10 slots available for the first trip to uh, Alaska this next summer. Go to wetflyswing.com slash destination to sign up to get your name in. Uh, if you're interested in checking it out, um, you can get more information there on the hosted trips we got coming up and uh, and some of the big superstars we have that are going to be uh, part of the part of the trip. In today's episode, I talk with Brian Mars, an Orvis endorsed employee and a guy who knows his way around the jetty. Brian describes the biggest challenges uh, of fishing the jetty, the difference between day and night fishing, and the best tides to wait for. We hear about uh, why a stripping basket is pretty important for keeping your line from getting uh, tangled up, the best shoes to wear, and a number of great resources to stay safe and catch some white, flaky fish. This episode is sponsored by Deli Fresh Design, an all-American creator of fine, sustainable fly fishing gear. Stay tuned later in the show to hear how Ross does his part to uh, reduce his waste and impacts with DLD and how he builds uh, great equipment in a sustainable fashion. You can find fresh equipment designs on Instagram at Deli Fresh Design, and you can get 20% off your next order using the coupon code WFS20 at DeliFreshDesign.com. We're also sponsored by The Great Drake, who provides high-quality heritage fly fishing tackle while being a good steward of our uh, sport. The new Fall Run fly box they have available for 2019 features small and medium-sized clips on one side of the box and um, slotted cork on the other. Naturally self-healing and hydrophobic will hold flies from the smallest midge to the largest stoneflies. Head over to thegraydrake.com and use the coupon code WFS20, that's WFS20, at checkout to get 20% off your next order of Vintage Today. So, without further ado, here is Brian Mars. How's it going, Brian? Good. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We're uh, getting an early start here, and uh, I know you've got a bunch of stuff going on today. Uh, the The Orvis uh, Fly Shop. We're going to dig into some of that, and and you know your your work over there. But um, maybe before we get into that, and some of the jetty fishing and lean cod and everything, you just talk about how you first got into fly fishing, and then how you brought it up to where you are today. All right. Well, um, it was one of those things when I moved to Eugene in 93 as a, um, former East coaster, I just thought that it would be something that would be very fitting to start fly fishing. So I initially purchased a, you know, classic blister packed outfit, tried to self teach myself on the McKenzie broke off lots of flies in the back cast and inevitably caught a trout here and there, but you know, it kept it going. And then um, I had some old older man at um, a former shop in Eugene called McKenzie Outfitters, which is a you know interesting name that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. But 
he pointed me toward Oak Ridge, Oregon, and then I went there with my friends frequently. And we got more and more like burst in fly fishing, figured it out more and more. Um, you know, just got really into the trout game for most of that time frame. And then at a certain point, I got connected with a bunch of the guys at the Caddis Fly because I started to become more of a worthy angler. <laughs> and yep. then um, basically at that point, um, a lot of the steelhead runs were really going good in the um, – early 2000s they started going really good and so we started all really getting very in a steelhead and getting really productive at it and um started all guiding you know and a lot of the guys were guides already who were working for the caddis fly and so i was in this big crew of people who really knew what was going on all of a sudden mm-hmm. and, and it just snowballed my knowledge and then i you know actually started to manage a fly shop that was called the walterville fly shop inevitably took it over and turned it into what was called the Mackenzie angler and was guiding very heavily. And at a certain point, the, um, the funny thing for our topic is that they they were doing a um, project on Mackenzie and they did uh, a thing on the South Fork of the Mackenzie on Cougar dam that caused the river to turn very turbid and Brown, like you were um, putting coffee and cream together. And so a bunch of people who came into my shop, had let me in on the fact that they were um, going fishing off the jetty at Winchester Bay in the nighttime and having really good success with bottom fish. So we, uh, you know, started doing that coincidentally. That's how that happened. But um, then I basically got to the point where I moved up to Portland and was actually in a mode of kind of falling out of the fly fishing industry. I was going to go back to school for nursing and then, Got a hired by Coffin Streamborn, which was a you know very reputable name in the fly fishing industry, and realized my passion for fly fishing, and got back into the guiding, and kind of fell out of the school thing, and um, you know got really into the guiding up here, and then started also on my free time to take my mind off of guiding. Ironically, I was going rock fishing, lingcod fishing at the uh, uh, Tillamook Bay North Jetty, and really falling into that again you know, just going avid and kind of figuring out my own program about it, which was really neat and just really, you know, tuning into that fishery and, you know, all on the side, trying to figure out a lot of everything, fish and carp, smallmouth, et cetera. Um, you know, just kind of being one of those fly fishers that really enjoys fishing for everything, not right. just one species, you know, deep down inside, I would actually say trout's my favorite to this day, but that's probably the essence of fly fishing. That's why we all do it. But, uh, you know, right now I'm, having that major big fish to um you know tug issue going where i want to go steelhead and i'm looking at those columbia counts praying we get some fish runs going but you know hence that's that's where you get this full throttle passionate freakazoid fly fisher i'd say you know just those that evolution <laughs> <laughs> that's cool that yeah that's an awesome story and now you're and now you're at orvis i mean looking back on that you know that summary i mean that's a ton of uh that's a ton of shops and uh, I mean, I'm not sure how many years uh, there, but I mean, starting back the McKenzie Outfitters, um, you know, the Waterville McKenzie Angler, and so the McKenzie Angler uh, shop. So that was a shop that, uh, and where was that at? So I um, actually had a shop on the um, in the McKenzie Valley in a town called Walterville, which would be when you're heading east, just getting out of the Springfield um, metro area, oh, yeah. say Eugene's yeah. area. As soon as you leave Springfield and it, it just starts to get very rural and then you 
drive over the McKenzie River on Hendricks Bridge. One mile east of that, you have a, a Walterville Shopping Center. Yeah. Had a shop there, and um, there's a little community called Walterville. Um, and that's where I had the shop, basically, which before that was called the uh, Walterville, Walterville Fly Shop. Fly but shop. I figured most people in the world don't know where Walterville is, but <laughs> most people do know where McKenzie is, so I changed the name and, and uh, had that in my name from 05 through 09 but then also ran that store from 01 to oh, 05 wow. so that's a nice so, chunk of time there yeah so basically got into the fly fishing you know industry right you know around 2000 and and have been going ever since basically gotcha yeah i've had a, yeah. a number of guests that you've talked about that i can't um gosh who was a good one well there we've i've had a few where they've talked about having fly shops in the uh the good things and the bad things about having fly shops. What was the thing that, you know, you were in it and you got out of that specific fly shop and then you moved to Kaufman's. What, what made the, what was the transition transition there? Like, um, well, the, the nice thing I would say about having my own shop was, you know, being your own boss, but the flip side was the reality of being your own boss. And if you're any bit passionate about something, you're going to, you know, care about it. And I got to the point where I, I cared too much and realized that, that, you know, sometimes if you have your own shop, it's hard to have time off. And as much as I was my own boss and got to go fishing whenever I was, I was also, you know, very vested in what I was doing and wanted to make sure it worked out and got to the point where I actually realized, you know, sometimes it's, it's maybe better to work for someone else if you don't want to have those heavy responsibilities. But, you know, it was a wonderful experience. I never take anything off of it and, um, you know, fell into the guide scene, developed relationships and realized how to, how to basically, you know, treat your customers right. And took that when I worked at Kaufman's and that was part of the reason they hired me. It was they liked the way um, I like to operate when I had my own shop as far as making sure everybody walked through the door felt like they were really important. Because mm-hmm. as, as a lot of us know from back in the day when you used to go in a fly shop, sometimes it was a, a little bit snooty of a feeling. And, you know, that movie... I always give the analogy happy Gilmore came along and made fly fishing a lot more accessible. And, you know, and, and reality is whether, you know, some of those times with the snooty attitude, if those people are mad that fly fishing's gotten more accessible, well, now it's fantastic. Some of the, you know, biggest audience in fly fishing are women. Some of the most accessible fly fishers are women and, you know, in all ages. And that's something years ago that wasn't the case. So that's phenomenal. Yeah, we and we've talked about that on the show. And I'm just looking back. It was way back in episode 17. Uh, Scott uh, Baker McGarva was, and that's a great episode. On uh, you know the first 30 episodes of this show are all steelhead, and uh, and that was uh, a great one. Scott went into it, but he talked about the same thing you you said right there is that he had his own shop up there in BC, um, and uh, yeah, and he just he couldn't. Well, I think he had an issue with his partner, but it was that thing you you get stuck in the shop and you can't get out. Oh of yeah, because people want you. You know, you're the you're the person. I mean, going to going to Kaufman Streamborn. And, um, I mean, was that shop a little snooty or what was your take on that whole thing? You know, I think when I was there, it was, it was, you know, final, you know, transition of getting out of that because I think it, it, you know, just, it came out of that fly shop era where, where shops were probably mainly snooty. If anybody was successful and running a good show, they, they probably just got inevitably jaded and, um, when I got hired there, they had a really good crew of, you know, fresh, fresh minds and people that were, you know, open-minded and wanted to make everyone feel included. And so the, I would say the final, you know, year when I worked there before it went out, 
unfortunately, you know, it went out. But uh, I think that the was very, you know, much more user friendly. Um, But I would also say that when I was hired um, from Orvis, that the guy who found me named Adam McNamara, he told me that when he came into Kaufman's that I was the one guy who made him feel really, really good. There you go. Customer. So, you know, good thing hearing that, you know, when I was hired. But I would say I worked with a really great crew at the final time at Kaufman's, and a lot of those guys have all moved on to good things in the fly fishing industry as well. It's funny. Um, one thing you reminded me of earlier, though, one one major awesome I'd say about having my own shop was, well, literally day after day when those steelhead runs were good was pulling up in my waders, um, right about you know nine thirty because I would be able to fish before work because it was so close upstream from the shop was where good steelheading was, and I'd get to the shop and unlock the door in my waders, and if there was a car waiting. To, for me to open they would say like hey were you out fishing and i'd say yeah i was out fishing and they would say you know what'd you do and i go steelhead and then they'd say how'd you do and the runs were so astronomical at that time oh yeah that some of the days you know i'd be like oh i hooked seven and landed four and they'd go like steelhead and i go yeah steelhead and they go <laughs> steelhead and then i would spread my arms apart and go yeah they're this big and they jump <laughs> and so um you know it's just amazing to think how the runs were not yeah. too long ago and, um, you know, it's just, it's incredible to have experienced that. So a yeah. lot of that I'd never, never, ever take back. No, I know that that is a, yeah, definitely. Uh, when we've had some of those conversations, yeah, definitely. I would love to pick your brain about the, uh, you know, McKenzie, you know, and steelhead and all that. We, uh, I think for this show, we're going to get into some of the, uh, lean cod rockfish, jetty fishing and, and on that end, because you, you know, like you said before, you've got some experience doing that. So, um, yeah, you want to get into a little, a little bit of this and maybe just start us off with, um, you know, when you think about, I guess, lean cod specifically, can you just tell, you know, you kind of talk about how you catch lean cod and are we talking jetties? Or are you doing also some stuff out in boats or off the surf or any of that stuff? So me personally, I've done most of my fishing off of the jetties, but I do have some experience off of some of the rocky features, um, say down toward Depot Bay. And even when I um, lived in Eugene, some of the places north of Florence are some rocky features, to be honest. I, most of them I can't even name north of Florence, but some of them were you know going around um, Hasita Head and areas yeah. like that. But uh some of those places are a lot more restricted toward conditions where you want to make sure that the swells are very small. Oh. You know, um, you have to really pay attention to that. Even, even regardless, you have to pay attention to the jetty, um, right. the swells. But the jetties are typically more user-friendly and a lot more approachable for the average person. That being said, they're still you know, very dangerous. The, mm. the scene is very dynamic where you have to have eyeballs in the back of your head when oh, you're right. doing this kind of fishing. Oh yeah, that's, a doubt. that's a good that's a good way to start off. Yeah, so you're not seeing uh, too many young kids out there fishing with their dads. Or, the or I would even say, um, you know, young, young fine. Um, you do read about these crazy things, you know, where where you get these sneaker waves that knock you know young kids into the water, and then dad goes to save the young kid. So right. literally, you know, real things that you know from living at the coast. But uh, I would say too, not not one for the um, older not so good to balance, you know, um, older crew that is maybe now, you know, more restricted from not even fishing streams anymore. If, the, if you're not able to fish streams, you're probably not going to be able to do this kind okay. of fishing. It's definitely, you know, yep. more of a physical kind of fishing, gotcha. but you know, the good thing as you know, 
there's some people out there that are running boats, um, especially out of like Pacific City. Yep. Um, some of the guides there that, you know, do conventional and fly and some do fly and some, you know, are going to what a range to do fly. So the cool thing about that is that enables this fishery to be accessed by, you know, people of all sorts. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And, and the, uh, yeah, we got to go like, all the way back to episode three. I think I, I'm not even sure where I'm at. We're getting, we're coming up near a hundred now on, on these episodes, but way back in episode three, uh, Jay Nicholas was on and he, um, he talked about, I guess we talked a lot about, uh, kind of salmon steelhead, but, but he's the guy down there. He's one of the guys down there doing some of that. And there's a lot of videos and actually I'll probably put a video to that link cod. Uh, there's a link cod, um, tying, uh, video he did, and I'll put that in the show notes for this episode, but, um, yeah, but yeah. So, well, let's just take it to the J and let's just break this down a little bit. So, you know, so you, you get to the J let's just talk about kind of maybe really quick, quickly run through the gear, what you need to get started and kind of okay. put somebody out on the rock. And then you could talk about, you know, where you're going, how you're finding fish. Do you just kind of go wherever and maybe start there? Yeah. So, so, um, first off when you, you know, head to the jetties. Some of these jetties have the fish. Some of them don't. That's something I think typically, you know, you can find out through trial and error, but also a lot of times just asking, you know, asking, even if it's not, um, if you're fly fishing, there's nobody that's going to, you know, unfo- um, nobody's going to be, um, you know, holding back their information. So if you were going to go to a conventional um, base fly, you know, fishing place, like say you go to Tillamook Sporting Goods and you ask them about jetty fishing, they're going to be very, you know, willing to tell you this jetty holds fish, this jetty doesn't. But if one's willing to try, obviously you can, you know, trial and error. But I started just, um, on a whim, you know, literally I, I, um, I told you the story earlier, how, when I lived in Eugene, we had some people that would come into my shop and they were doing night fishing, of all things. And then they had realized through their own trial and error that the night fishing was much more productive, which I would say is true. Hmm. But the thing that was interesting was when I would daytime fish, you'd, you'd be lucky to catch a fish here and there when I, this is down at Winchester Bay. And then when you night fish, sometimes you were catching fish in every single cast hmm. that, that fishery there was a, um, oyster farm. And so the, the one influence it had was tidal influence, but it wasn't, very fast moving currents because the water was actually going through the jetty rocks and All also right. through culverts. But if I jump ahead and now just say, let's go to Barview, Tillamook Bay, North Jetty. Mm-hmm. When I moved up to Portland and wanted to figure out that fishery on my own, as an example for anybody looking to get into this and do it on their own, I, I started just going to the North Jetty. The nice thing about the North Jetty is it's unbelievably accessible. There are is a street that just literally yeah. takes you to a parking lot where the uh, um, campground would be. But right outside of the campground, there's a little parking lot. You'll see actually all sorts of people, like uh, people who are crabbing, people who are going spear fishing, et cetera. <laughs> and, and, you know, you can just park right at the end of the street. There's two big tide pools, and the jetty goes way, way out there. The further you get out the jetty, usually the rougher the water is getting and also the steeper the jetty is getting for back cast and everything oh, like yeah. that. But it turns out right at Barview, you can, you can literally get out of your car and, and fish anywhere from as easy to walk to from your car to, you know, way out in the jetty, depending on what, what you're willing to, you know, want to put out. Does the fishing and, get better? Uh, do, do you get into more fish as you go out further or is there places where there are more fish? 
You know, uh, I would say this is a great question. Stereotypically, yes. And, and uh, you know, according to, say, a game officer when I interrogated them about it. But then me personally, my statistical findings are not proving that. I've yeah. had some of the best sessions being um, literally right out of the car and, and walking, like, straight to the water, you know, as far as by crow's flight, like the yep. easiest possible route to the jetty right from the car which would be you know pretty far into the bay not really into the bay you know you're just in yeah. the jetty mouth yeah. but uh, but i've had really good fishing there the nice thing about that jetty when you look at an aerial view the jetty does does basically an l going into the bay and what it does is it kicks over um, a giant eddy that if you were going to imagine like the the part of the elbow that's uh trying to think but like the, the not the cut bank or, or not the inside but the cut bank side of yeah the, the, if, if you're looking the outside at the top bend. view yeah or you know and even like the jetty side of it going you know toward 101 and yep. the jetty you're standing on like that angle you'll get a jet um, a giant eddy whirling in there and then when the current is coming in and out of the bay it will it'll you know either be going out or in and that eddy will whirl you know either counterclockwise or clockwise top view and a lot of times you can find where that eddy is meeting the outgoing current or incoming current. You can always find like a slacker current, oh, if you will. Okay. Because one of the challenges when you're when you're jetty fishing is, um, you know, presentation. You throw it out, yeah. and and as you're counting down the sink, the current is either going to swing it swing it around, you know, upstream or swing it around downstream, um, like just like any wet fly swing, but the problem is when it's swinging too fast, you you really won't catch much. Yeah, you'll you'll get them when it swings somewhat, but you have to you know let it get down and strip it in, and also that motion of just like a natural stripping is a lot more effective than swinging the fly. Yeah, but you know, and then um, so you you know you, that approachability is really phenomenal. The fact of you know, this giant tangent I'm just talking about uh, of this eddy. Yeah. But that's one really nice thing about the bar view jetty is that fishing wise, um, you know, again, if you're going to talk to anybody, basic info, they're going to say incoming tide, to high tide. I would tell you the reality of the complexity is that when, when I'm fishing it, I find when you have say winter time, if there's a lot of flows coming from the tributaries into the bay, like the Wilson, Trask, um, Kilches, Miami, if all those are putting a lot of fresh water into the bay, then that incoming to high tide is going to be true because you're going to get salt water from the ocean getting into your fishery right, and it's going to make it nice and salty. But if you were to go at low tide, the water would probably be more fresh than salty. And the yeah. fish probably, if anything, I don't know what they do, but I think they just get outside of the jetty and they go out in yeah. the ocean. Yeah. Maybe they come and go, but but when you take the um, spring, summer, fall, this time of the year, I don't think those fish care whether it's low tide or sure. high tide. I, I've caught lingcod at, you know, two hours before low tide. I've caught lingcod at slack low. I've caught lingcod at, you know, two hours after peak high. Everything that says you shouldn't, you know, have good fishing, proving that doesn't matter. But I think, you know, that variability of the saltwater with the um, bay in a matter of, you know, what are the tribute tributaries doing? So yeah. in the winter time, I would say you could follow the rule of thumb. You want to get there on, you know, on an incoming tide and fish until that yep. peak high, maybe a little bit after peak high. 
And then this time of the year, I think fishing around the, the peak of the tide, whether it's peak low, peak high, um, and you fish before the tide, after the tide, a lot of times right at the, the crest of the tide, the, the fishing might shut off for 20 minutes because mm-hmm. the current is kind of, you know, just dead and there's not much, you know, bait flowing around or whatever the fish are looking for. But a lot of times, you know, if you're fishing up to high tide, you'll be doing really well. The tide peaks out, all of a sudden you shut off. And then maybe 20 minutes later, you start really getting in the fish again. So, you know, tide, tides are very important as far as orienting your trip. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, earlier I mentioned nighttime is really good. Obviously, a lot of people can't fish in the night. But if you can, you know, if somebody has a free schedule and they can show up right at dusk and they can fish, you know, from maybe two hours before the sun goes down to three hours after the sun goes down, you're going to probably find a dramatic time right when the sun is maybe dipping behind the horizon yeah. the fishing could literally get to the point where, you know, you, you might actually have trouble ling cod fishing because you're catching a rockfish on every single no cast. Kidding. Yeah. And you can't, you can't get your fly through the rockfish, which is, you know, interesting topic, wow. but, uh, and then, you know, equipment wise, cause we, you know, we kind of covered tides, um, timing, you know, daylight versus dark yeah. equipment. Yeah, before we, before we get to oh, the equipment, yeah. yeah, I just didn't want to miss one point. You and you made a bunch yeah. of amazing points there. I mean, the you know that's all good stuff. So, um, I mean, the eddy thing uh, you mentioned, the swirling and the you know different rotation. You know, so when you get out there, so you park your car, you just walk out there. Is that something where you can kind of look out there and find that? And and is it totally necessary, or are there, are there times where you don't have to worry about? No, that no, I would I would say you know that's a great question. So like what you know, say let's let's put a, an imaginary incoming tide, and let's pretend you know the tide is incoming and and it's kind of a casual flow, and you could be just say further out in a jetty, like you got out of your car and you walked a couple hundred yards out. And what happens inevitably is I'm going to throw my fly, you know, fly line, fly, maybe even up current a little bit. But say I throw it instead of, you know, if I'm looking straight across the jetty, maybe instead of throwing it even straight out, maybe I throw it a little bit to the right just to get some depth into my sinking line. And and the fly and line are sinking down. And then all of a sudden the current kind of has that to the point where it's swung around a little bit. So it's almost like now pointing maybe 45 degrees to the left and I counted to 12 at this point. Now I'm, you know, all of a sudden getting into a casual strip and I'm stripping my fly in and, you know, and and that's working for now, but say an hour later when I throw that out before I could even hit my number 12 of my count, my line is already swung around at 75 to my left and it's just swinging around too fast. So now if I, start walking to the left, I'm going to inevitably hit this point where the current going into the bay is going to find that, that counter eddy at that elbow and the jetty mm-hmm. from top view. You know, it sounds really complicated, yeah. you know, the podcast, but, um, yeah. but if somebody were to look on Google earth satellite and like, you know, they get onto that bar view jetty and they hit Google earth satellite, they can uh, kind of imagine what's going to happen if they see this current going in and where that elbow is, um, hard in the jetty there's going to be a you know a lapse in heavy current push so it's going to cause that big eddy and that eddy i'm talking could be like 50 yards across and it's one of those things that top view you don't necessarily see it because you're angle on a jetty but if you're on the jetty and that current's coming in 
and you're further out, all the water is going to be going from your, your right to your left. But then you walk into the left in a jetty, so you're going inward. And inevitably, you're going to hit a point where the current on the jetty is going to be going a switch factor because of that eddy. And the, the current is going to probably be going from left to right. And then at a certain point, they're going to join together. So when you're walking, you know, say from 100 yards out, the current's going right to left. And then you're 50 yards out, the current's right to left. And then all of a sudden you hit 40 yards out and the current is maybe flat. And then you go 30 more yards, you know, or yeah. from your car, you know, you're getting gotcha. close to your car in a sense. And all of a sudden the current, you know, switched and the current's going from left to right in front of you. And then if I go, you know, maybe more and more in the bay, the current all of a sudden is definitely apparently going from left to right. So, yeah. you know, that's how you'd figure out the eddy. And then say conversely at the other tide, when the tide is going outbound and you were a hundred yards out from your car, the, the current's going to be going from left to right. But then if you're right near your car, maybe the current's going from right to left. And at a certain point, they're going to join together. And a lot of times when the currents are really heavy, and it would seem unfishable, you can find right where that eddy is going to meet the main incoming or outgoing tidal current, and you can have a somewhat slacker current. And sometimes the fish are really stacked in that area too, as oh, far as, you know, there you. might be a lot of rockfish, and if there's a lot of rockfish there, they're going to typically, you know, bring the food chain in, so you're going to get the lingcod that are going to come in because, yep. you know, everything is there. If the rockfish are there, they're after the bait, and the lingcod are going to be after the bait too. So that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So yeah. basically, just get there, and yeah, you're going to be. You're not going to stay in the same spot for hours and hours. You're going to be kind of be adjusting as you go. Exactly, and 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 that's you know back to the safety thing again. That's why. If somebody's out there, they want to make sure one, they have, you know, the right footing, they're also the right, you know, gear, the right shoes. Um, totally, you know, funny thing, but I've learned over the years, obviously, you know, when we're fishing, we have to, you know, be variable with the conditions. But when I'm fishing out there and the weather's really nice, I've actually learned that sometimes just wearing, um, sneakers, you know, <laughs> rubber soled sneakers, yeah. hiking shoes, you know, say a Vibram sold hiking shoe because, when the jetty's bone dry, you're going to actually have the best success just with a uh, rubber oh. sole grabbing. But the other thing is be aware of your surroundings, you know, because sometimes I've seen people get trapped out in spots in the jetty where the tide comes in. Oh, wow. And so if you're in an area, watch, you know, make sure that flow isn't going to trap you in a little, you know, island of rocks out there. Right. But then, you know, like you take a rainy day and you know, maybe the, the best traction is going to be a studded felt sole. Yeah. Um, Cause the rocks are wet and shellacked with a uh, salty wetness. And so, you know, that same rubber sold Vibram sole that you were, you know, hiking around in your shorts on a nice coastal day. The next day you're out there wearing a raincoat waders right. and studded shoes. Cause you know, the weather out in the Oregon coast yeah. can <laughs> be completely opposite levels very fast. And and just for timing, just so, uh, and right now it's about mid July, just so as we talk, if we're talking about fo folks know out there, we'll, we're kind of yeah. just getting into the summer, but, um, so how do you know when you're out there fishing and we'll get into the gear here in a sec, but, um, you know, so you're out there fishing. How do you know when, other than the, the currents are changing and you can tell that with your line, but how else do you know when to move to a different spot? Is there a thing where if you don't catch a fish in a cast or two, you should start moving or how would somebody know? On uh, I would say several. Yes. Yes. No, that's a very good point too. As far as working the water, I find for lingcod, if you really um, want to be the best success, 
um, typical day, you're going to be marching around on the jetty. I one time was at Winchester Bay, and I saw a conventional angler with a um, just like a white curly tailed jig kind of you know looked something that you'd use for bass typically, but he had a bigger one, you know, several you know like a three aught hook or whatever it is, <laughs> and he. He said he had several lingcod and I was watching him and he would like, you know, be on the, on a spot in a jetty, take like a cast to the left, cast straight out, cast to the right, retrieve him back in, move about five rocks over, do the same thing, move about five rocks over. I started uh, adopting that same idea of fly fishing where I'll jump on a, you know, nice flat, safe rock. I'll fan out a systematic, you know, I might cast to the left, cast straight out, cast to the right bring them in um, maybe a couple different paces mm-hmm. of retrieve and then, you know, jump four or five rocks to the right, do the same thing four or five rocks to the right. Certain areas where if I see it drop off really abruptly from standard and I see it just drop off in the deep green, right where I'm fishing, I might yeah. focus a little harder on it. And then there are definitely spots in the jetty that I've heard from the uh, spear fisher people where they've said like these dips in the rocks, tend to have more fish at them so you know a couple couple spots in the jetty i focus in harder and anywhere obviously just like you know any of us being steelheaders where we you know have our lucky spot where we stood on the rock and our fly swung by the rock and we caught our fish at that spot you know we're gonna probably have a lot more confidence in the future yeah at those spots and i would say that very much is influential when i'm rock fishing i I mean i'm wing cod fishing where if i'm at a spot in the jetty and I throw it out and I've caught a fish there before, I'm going to probably have a lot more confidence in it yep. in future visits too. That's right. So basically if yeah. you find a spot, uh, you can rest assured the next time you go there. Well, I guess that's the th- the challenge is the tides and things yeah. change, but yeah. if, you're, if everything, right if all things are equal, you go back to that spot, there's a good chance that fish are going to hold in that spot again. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, as far as if I was at a given spot at low tide and I caught a fish there, and the, you know, tide was, you know, 5.2 feet on the tidal marker. Chances are I'm going to have that same kind of success. Gotcha. Oh, you know what? Actually, timing, we, uh, I should revert back a little yeah. bit as far as tides. So one thing about Oregon that's interesting in our tides is when you look at tidal charts, they'll typically show a, um, a high, high tide, a lower high tide, a higher low tide, and then a lower low tide. Yeah. And. When you look on the title charts, some of them nowadays, when they, they have the graphic um, depictions of it, there's a website that I use called Mobile Graphics, and it's a really great site because when you click on the title charts, they show you the curved interpretation just like a river level site. And one thing I really like, you know, if somebody's driving from, say, the Portland metro area and looking for a bigger title window to fish, more so... Um, this would be talking about your line swinging around too fast. And so having maybe more of a longer duration session where your line isn't going to swing around so fast and it's going to give you a lot more fishability. What I like to see um, for anybody, again, you know, that's more apprehensive of doing this because they don't want to put in the time to drive out there, um, you know, without, you know, that risk of just a failed mission. But more likely to give you longer time for fishing would be, going out there where you either have a higher low tide going into a lower high tide mm-hmm. or you have a high, you know, a high, high tide going into a high low tide. 
And when you look on the curves, you'll see that. And so sometimes during, say, a six-hour tidal exchange, you only have about four feet of um, vertical you know, water oh, right. displacement yeah. one way or the other. Versus when you go out and you have, you know, a a very high, high tide going into a very low, low tide, you're going to have a lot more water moving around. So it's going to cause, you know, maybe two hours of fishing time versus five hours. That's a good point. So, yeah, that's that's a huge one. I find that, you know, if it's going to be your first day doing it and you're going to, you don't want to go on that peak high tide, show up there an hour before high tide and it's going into a. You know, it's a 12.2 going into a minus one. You're going to have a 12 feet of water going over six hours, which is going to be very limited time for fishing. That's a good point. Probably cause someone to not smile. (laughs) (laughs) What's the, uh, what what was that website again? Um, Mobilegraphics.com. I I would be honest and tell you how I found it is I've literally gone, say, into Google and just typed in, um, Barview Jetty Tides, and then I would see it as like one of the top ten listings. And in the URL, I'll see the word mobile graphics, and then I click on that. And then they'll, when you click on it, they'll usually show like three, four days, and you can actually modify your tidal windows. So if you were like uh, years ago, I was planning a trip when my in-laws were coming, and we looked like months ahead at the tidal charts and said, "Hey, and you know May this and that, the tides are going to be phenomenal." for our, our you know trip coming up we rented a house at the jetty and we just walked down all the time you know four or five times a day and we had uh, unbelievably good fishing just from being able to look oh months ahead. i see it yeah yeah I also see. having the weather play, you know coordinate or cooperate with us too i got you here yeah and just for a reference i'll put a link in the show notes because it is kind of long but the uh, the url is uh, actually tides.mobilegeographics.com that's it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I went to mobile graphics. I went to mobile graphics. I was like, Whoa, this is a weird site. Yeah. Don't go, yeah. To, don't go to mobile. Gra- go to uh, tides.mobile uh, geographics, but yeah, I'll have a link cool. in the show notes and everything else we talk about. Yeah. And I've seen that site for many of the, um, you know, Rocky formations and areas around. Cause I've even, yeah. I had a, the depot bay and i used it for the tides there and it worked just great gotcha. so so i'm looking at it now we can just break in this just for a sec so i'm looking at it's cool yeah it's got the graph and and it shows all the tides so basically you know there's a low tide the lowest tide is kind of well, actually it's almost a negative yeah it's a negative one and that's at um seven six so tuesday today seven eighteen a.m so there's a, a, a negative one which is a pretty low tide then it goes up to you know at 1 48 p.m it goes up to about a six foot tide and then you know, and then at 7 p.m. it goes down to about a three foot, and then then in the evening around 12:36 a.m. we're up to a, a seven foot. You know, so yeah, so it just shows you. So if I was going to choose a time to to go, I would want the low. I don't want it going from a really low to a high to really low. Uh, you know, the, like you said. So I I think probably the best time if I had to look at this is probably um, going from that kind of a not super high to low. So I think this evening, well, no, you said you want to go in there when the incoming tide, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would even say like on that example, you're talking about two hours before high, Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> two hours before high, probably going, you know, maybe all the way into that low tide. You might have to take a break at some point 
just because maybe your fly line would be whipping around too fast a couple hours after the high. Yeah. You know, maybe three hours after high, you might take a little break, eat some dinner and go back out again. But gotcha. you'd probably have about, you know, five, six hours of fishability there. I'm, I'm going to take a, a screenshot and put a, a screenshot of, of what I'm looking at just so people can see it. Because, yeah, there's actually even a purple bar that shows you from about 9 p.m. tonight until 6 a.m., the, is that showing you the best? What is that purple bar? Do you know what I'm talking about? You no, know, they, they may nowadays, actually. Um, some of these sites are putting these like fishing window times. I think that's what this is because it's basically yeah. showing what you, you said the best time to go. It's, say, it's showing you by a purple bar where to get when the best time is. That is funny. Yeah, I want to actually, I was going to go online and check it out at the same time, but uh, I bet that's what it is because I've seen that. Yeah, as far as cool. They'll, they'll tell you the times for fishing. That's awesome. Then. That's an awesome resource. And yeah, I can see. Uh, and then tomorrow it's doing the same thing. So, okay, cool. This is good. We got a good resource. And Let's take a quick break from a word from our sponsors. The Great Drake, since 2014, the Great Drake's mission has been to provide high quality heritage fly fishing tackle while being good stewards of our sport. They use sustainable cork instead of silicone or foam inserts in their fly boxes. These cork inserts are naturally self-healing and hydrophobic and will not and will hold flies from the smallest midge to the largest stoneflies and hoppers. Be on the lookout for the new Fall Run fly box available in 2019. This aluminum fly box features small and medium-sized clips on one side and uh, on the other slotted cork, which is perfect for bombers and skaters. Conservation is the key with the Gray Drake, and they support uh, a great organizations including utah stream access coalition and trout unlimited's wild steelheaders united head over to the to check out their classic selection of fly boxes and wallets today we are also sponsored by deli fresh design a company that makes sustainable fly fishing gear in the heart of denver colorado deli fresh blends old waders and cordura canvas to make rugged river tested gear such as fly wallets koozies and their classic sling packs you can listen to the full podcast interview with Ross, the founder of DLD, uh, at episode 79 of, of this podcast. But take a quick listen to a short clip from that uh, interview that gives an example of how Ross reduces his waste uh, with his personal actions as a business and highlights his dedication to conservation. But as a company, I'm trying to reduce my impact uh, by riding a bike or taking uh, the bus or shared uh, shared cars, stuff like that on uh, for commuting. And then, you know, yeah, when I go fishing, I, I'll get in a car, but I, I try to go with other people. And, and so I think there's things that as consumers that we can do on a daily basis, not just not just to uh, to, you know, throw money at a problem. I think that's the last thing we should be doing is sort of deciding where we can uh, make an impact on a personal level. And I think my own mentality of doing those things on a daily basis, like driving or riding a bike, uh, and then trying to see what uh, what materials I can use that reduce waste or what I'm trying to do as a person and as a company. Let's help Ross and DLD do great things today and this year for fly fishing and conservation. All of DFD's gear will help you spend more time casting and less time juggling your stuff. To see these great products, go to uh, Instagram and follow them where you can see their latest designs or you can head over to delifreshdesign.com and use the coupon code WFS20 to get 20% off your next order. Okay, back to the show. And then are there any other um, 
you know, videos that show or is or what would you say just resources generally as far as, you know, kind of talking about lean cod and jetty fishing, um, anything else out there that people can use to, to help? Boy, it is really a tough resource, I would yeah. say. I mean, one thing that the, the caddisfly, like OregonFlyFishingBlog.com, um, some of it archived way back, but but there are definitely a lot of things Jay Nicholas puts up. Yeah. Uh, or, um, but then when um, years back when they were way in their earlier phases, they had um, a couple brothers working there, and one of them named Nate Stansbury was actually doing charters, and he was really into it. So they had a lot of videos years back, and he even took out, like I remember he took Jeff Hickman out for oh, cool. um, cod fishing. So sure. you know they, they were really dipping in those waters and creating a lot of interest in it. And then the Pacific City people – they they really do a good job over there. I think it's like Pacific City fly fishing, and Jay's pretty involved with them. Oh, yeah. They're they're more of you know not of the boat show, but they they you know obviously have that scene dialed. I feel like you know as far as there's a um, guide named Brant Roulette that I've heard um, will do fly fishing trips. So and a lot of the you know people want to added bonus that I hear it's really cool when you get involved with any of those people is that they will literally like put crab pots out on the way out. To oh, there the, you uh, go. <laughs> water. So, so when you get back, you have this That's amazing, bonus. Bonus but as far as resources it is really tough. I would tell you when I first saw, um, a book by John Shuey, fly fishing and beyond number one. And then I think number two, they, he had lingcod maybe in number one, but it was, it was very um, brief, stereotypical, like going out in a jetty with a lantern, sure. bringing the bait fish in and all that. And I've done that, but but I would also say that I've just bounced around with like a headlamp on and not found that you have to summon them up with your lantern. But nonetheless, I would tell you, you know, John Chewy's book was one of the first things, but you go online, it is really tough um, to yeah. find information. I've had people come into Orvis and tell me that, you know, the, all they saw were videos I put up of jetty <laughs> fishing, you know, and nice. I, I actually have a lot of videos, but unfortunately my, you know, video making um, time was kind of already of the past. So a lot of the videos I put up were years and years sure. ago. And some of them, you know, I would already look at and say are pretty dated because I'm using different fly lines and stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah no. Well, that's a good, um, that's a good segment. I did want to, um, you know, jump into on the gear there. And so maybe just break that out real quick on the, uh, rod line leader stuff. Yeah. So, so most people stereotypically are going to, you know, tell you for, for jetty fishing, you're going to want to use like seven, eight, nine weight. And I would say if you're specifically targeting lingcod, you should probably be using like a nine weight, eight weight's going to do fine. And, and I would be honest and tell you, I, I have a lot of times when I'm rock fishing, I'll use a um, stout saltwater six, a previous model Orvis made called the uh, Helios two tip flex saltwater rod, where it's mm-hmm. a fighting butt salt six. And I use that for rock fish and I've caught a handful of wing caught on it where I've been totally undergunned, but you know, it was a good problem. <laughs> you just put the full court press to them and uh, strip them in hard and hopefully, you know, you have enough power, but, but for real, most people are going to want to use a, nine weight because of the flies you're going to throw out to these fish that could be um any bit as big as a kelp greenling you know so you could be throwing flies that are up 12 inches long because um you know one of their quarries is a fish called a kelp greenling and if you're going to 
custom tie flies imitate those, you, you can literally tie up to 12 inches. So wow. you can flies that are similar to what people are using for like muskie and pike. Yep. So, um, you know, nine weight rod for lings, if you're specifically targeting that. And then if you're wanting to, you know, say fish for, you know, rockfish and ling cod, you could easily get away with using an eight and have, you know, a good time with, with that. Um, fly lines really important. I've been using last several years, a, a fly line called a depth charge made by Orvis. And it would be synonymous with like a deep water express from scientific anglers. Mm -hmm. But what you have is, um, a running line that's intermediate pace. And then the, the previous, um, depth charge just would had, had a 30 foot grains head, you know, whether it was mm -hmm. 200 grains, 250, 300, for a nine weight, you'd be using like a 350. But nowadays, they just revamped this depth charge where it's 30 feet in the front of a type six, um, six inches a second. And then it goes in 20 feet of a type three behind that uh, into the running line. And then the whole back end of the running line is intermediate uh, type one, 1 1.5, essentially, mm -hmm. one and a half inches a second. So that's going to be a lot, you know, nicer of a performing line. But the good thing about those types of lines is when you're retrieving your fly, it'll stay deep the whole way through, as opposed to when people say, can I use a sink tip? And I'm like, no, you don't yeah. want to, use because a sink tip, you're going to have your, your line floating up on top. And as you retrieve your fly, you're going to be pulling it toward the surface. And it's only going to be, you know, five to 10 feet under to begin with. Uh -huh. But when you throw out those lines, like a depth charge, you you could be potentially fishing 40 feet deep with your fly, maybe even deeper. And one thing a lot of people don't think about is when you're on the jetty, it's not vertical. The jetty underwater is going to slope outward, you know, say maybe 45 degrees from where you're standing all the way to when it hits the bottom of the, you know, bottom of the inlet. A lot of the um, scuba guys say it's about 40 feet out there. But if you throw out your line, you know, straight out and you get, you know, all the way out in your 40 feet, you're still probably fishing over jetty rocks, but that's a good thing because that's where all the, you know, lingcod and oh, rocks yeah. are hiding anyway. They're going to be hiding, you know, up above these rocks and um, sitting there. But you're going to, as far as line-wise, you know, that's the really important thing. The rod's really important. Leader setup, really basic. I just do a hand-tied, um, literally like 30 25 20 all fluorocarbon um i use the orvis mirage but it's um just three feet um of tippet and, and about two and a half three feet of tippets 20 pound and then i maybe just do about a, a foot of 25 and then about a foot of 30 that taper definitely helps turnover i find as opposed to just putting a straight piece off of the mm. fly line it just helps you know turn over those big bulky flies because a lot of the stuff for wing cod you're throwing is going to be pretty big you know right. I'm, I'm, as far so, as flies I'm, yeah oh yeah what were you gonna say i was gonna say so when you're casting i mean what, what is that like i mean do you have any tips for and how far yeah, and so, how far do you have to cast and all that not not terribly far i mean typically if you're if you could throw 65 feet that's phenomenal but you could you could pretty much throw so the head on these um, lines is 30 feet and most people are going to be able to throw the head and then the head itself is going to pull running line out of the rod. So you're going to have, 
Um, a stripping basket is really key because okay. if you have your line stripped out into the basket, if you throw it just on the rocks and it, it sinks down into a crevice and then a wave pushes, it can get your line wedged in between other rocks and you could actually get to the point where you might never want to, you know, figure out how you're going to find your fly line. And oh, wow. I've had a time, for instance, where I had to cut my fly off and then kind of pull my line in where it was threading in and out of barnacles in between rocks, oh, you know, yeah. under jetty somewhere. So stripping basket, really clutch. Um, yeah. Some some rocks you can stand on and your rear rock is a pretty big flat platform you can carefully strip your line on. But I would say a basket's a pretty good okay. necessity. Is there a good? But, is there, uh, are there a bunch of different baskets out there? Or is it? Is there a good? There are, but I'll tell you a funny thing, and, and this isn't even just a toot working for Orvis. Um, when you go online and you type in best stripping baskets for fly fishing, the Orvis stripping basket pops up usually number one. Yeah, and. Um, we, you know, even at the store working there, we make the joke that it's, you know, the most expensive tub of plastic you can buy. But, That's but right. for some reason, it just pops. Um, I myself saw a video on how to fabricate one. I went and fabricated one and then I went and bought one the next day. Yeah. And I find that happens a lot, but you could, there's ways to fabricate them online. I yeah. think most of the ones you buy are going to be comparable in price. And that's why it ends up just popping as the best one because. There's a lot of them that pop that you're going to pay a lot of money for these, you know, fancy bells and whistles that don't really perform properly. Yeah. But, uh, you know, between options on making them or, you know, forking out, it's definitely a must to have, but, but they're pretty easy to come by. Okay. Um, as far as distance, you know, so say you strip out your line in there, you're getting about, about, you know, 65 feet if you're going far you don't need to go much further but say you even throw 50 feet so you have your 30 foot head and 20 feet of running line and then you count to anywhere from you know throwing it right out and stripping immediately to counting up to 12 to counting the 20 just depending on the given day to be honest with you um yeah some days the fish are you know going to be on the last few strips and some days they're they're like you throw it out there count to 20 and they're on the first couple strips so yeah. A lot of that seems to be, you know, situational on tides and barometer, all these unknowns and, you know, bait out there. But, um, you know, we got, let's see, the leader covered. Yeah. Well, are, are, you counting to, are you counting to, so on that counting to 20 or whatever you're counting to, you know, are you trying to, I guess you're trying to get to different levels, but how do you know, you know, what to count to? Are you, and are you getting snagged up a oh, lot? Oh, trial, trial and error. Yeah. No, no, actually the funny thing is, um. A lot of these days, you you know, you, you'll be amazed how much you don't snag up. But a funny thing that, you know, I tell people if they're in front of me, you know, at the store and asking about this is I'll tell them as you're stripping, you know, when you throw it out and you say you count to 20 and you're stripping, your rod tip's going to be in the water. And then you can tell as you're stripping in, your fly line changes color. So, you know, you get your head in your rod and all of a sudden your line kind of turns charcoal colored, but at that point, you know, you're 30 feet long. So you're, you're getting closer. And when you start getting maybe halfway through your head, what I'll do is instead of having my rod tip touching the water, I'll actually have my rod tip start coming off the water and almost just being say parallel to the water. Like my entire fly rod from butt to tip will be parallel to the water. And that will cause your fly at the very end to not poke into the rocks. It'll cause your fly to strip straight upward out of the water. And so sometimes that last four or five strips is the key to not losing your fly, you know, spearing it right in the rocks. Cause 
you're stripping it in and and if you don't do anything with your rod tip at the end it'll just oh yeah you know just kind of go right into the jetty but gotcha. if you influence the way that coming out of the water just by taking your rod tip and you know just lifting your rod tip out of the water it'll cause you from losing okay. you know 500 flies yeah. and just being aware of your surroundings if you're stripping your fly and you see this you know kind of white jetty rock right, right. out you know, and yeah, it's pulled up a little kind of got like a right angular ledge you could assume it's probably going to be more snaggy <laughs> okay yeah that makes sense and then what's the um and I then mean, inverted yeah. flies too you know dumbbells really help too okay get, getting you down yeah um and then on the retrieve what types of retrieves and strips and are you doing any jigging or any of that stuff um you know i would tell you anything from from just like you know uh if i'm going to put it in a stereotypical sense and say a brown trout strip you know anything i throw it out and just kind of like strip 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 um you know my arms may be pulling you know seven to ten inches per strip but then i've i've had one day um you know just how you can learn every day you do it one day i'm watching this person down the jetty and they're they're plowing fish and um, totally different. You know, they, they weren't plowing lingcod, but they were plowing fish. And I was out there and just wanting to get in some action. And so I, I kind of snuck down to the jetty and stood sort of close enough to them where I can observe what they were doing. And they were using a spinning reel and they, they were practically throwing what looked like a crappie jig. Yeah. And they would cast out, let it like hit the bottom. And they were reeling as slow as they can ever reel right. but fish on. So I stood there, I'd fire it out, I was casting like a white bunny leech, and then I would count to 15, and then I would strip like that That um, when people are lake fishing, and they, yep. they call it the finger crawl, right. where kind of crimping up the line in their hands, um, you know, so as slow as you can ever strip, and, and I would catch a fish on like every single cast, and then that day, ended up, you know, getting into rockfish, but all of a sudden out of the blue, sometimes when you're, you know, into the rockfish, I think that you'll stir up the wing cod. And all of a sudden, you know, one of the fish was a wing cod actually broke me off before I got it in. But, uh, you know, it was pretty amazing. So I got a wing cod on a, like a, you know, five inch bunny leech with the slowest strip you can ever do possible. (laughs) And underwater, I was wondering what it was even looking like, but I was never snagging up or anything. It was interesting. That's cool. That's cool. Good. Well, yeah. let's, let's uh, so yeah, let's just stick on the link. I mean, we've been talking, obviously you can catch different species out there, but so, you know, yeah, let's talk about the flies here. And before we do the flies, um, real, is there a good reel? You know, I know Orvis, do you have anything that uh, you'd recommend for somebody if they don't have a salt so, reel? So, um, the good thing about this is that like trout, the line, it, uh, the reel is, I would say, a line holder, you know, to be blunt, mm-hmm. where a lot of these fish, you're hand stripping because since they're ambush predators and they're sitting in the jetty, like the lingcod are just sitting there a lot of times in the rocks looking up and something goes over them, they lunge out, get it, and then they want to get right back into the rocks, flare their fins out. All right. And so when you get those things on, you got to hand strip them hard. Um, you don't really want to sit there and put them on the reel. Obviously, if they pulled your line on the reel, you'd be on the reel. But usually, you're just kind of hand stripping them in and you know fighting them hard. And when you have that situation, you know the reel is less of a focal point, more the you know rod, the line, the flies. The reel. Um, one thing that we sell at the store that's you know real affordable is the uh, Hydros SL, where it's a really good saltwater reel, and actually people can use it you know, in big time saltwater fishing, you know, whether they're tarpon, et cetera, but, um, that, or even what we sell called a bat and kill disc. You definitely want 
the machined aluminum anodized, you know, type of a reel. But as far as you don't need any kind of fancy drag system, but I would say having a saltwater reel is going to be important just for the corrosion, if anything. Yeah. You know, because if you have a non saltwater reel and you have corrosion, that's going to cause your, you know, other fishing to get affected. So you're going to want that, but you don't really need much of a fancy reel for this, I would say. Okay. And do you find Uh that um, just being out there in the salt, that you, you know, are there any others as far as your rod or line cleaning things differently than you would in freshwater? Yeah. Like when I, when I'm done, I get home and I I definitely will um, give my, you know, fly reel a rinse. I I still, you know, I use all premium saltwater equipment myself just because I happen to have it, but uh, I still rinse it. It's um, one of those things when you're, you know, whether you're here, you're in Belize and you get done fishing, you always want to, you know, give your, saltwater equipment a rinse at least if you're using it within hours later again and then if you're done with that trip you want to give it like a full-on freshwater bath where you bring it in the shower and really get it you know rinsed out and get all that salt out of there because even if it's quote saltwater compatible salt's not a good thing for any of our equipment yeah let's just start with the uh, the the 222 which is kind of the the top two flies top two uh tips top two resources so what are your you know if you think of lean cod what are are the two flies your go-to flies um so i will tie for lean cod as far as just tried and true i will tie two things um what what i personally will call king kong bonnie leeches and they literally are just um you know your stereotypical conehead bunny leech but tied on you know literally like a four-aught hook (laughs) and you know maybe six seven inches long the color white or barred white um is just money for me i've caught so many fish on just this uh you know white or barred white bunny leech with a big cone um the the bigger cones are pretty hard to find nowadays (laughs) like i literally have uh you know, sourced myself out where nowadays I've been using dumbbell eyes. So they, they work fine. You know, basic thing is just a really big bunny leech. Um, and I'll put a couple strands of flashaboo. They're pretty hard to find commercially. So most people have to tie them, but they're very easy to tie. Uh Then my number two, which also could be my number one inner, you know, exchanging one or the other, the bunny leech and the other two would be a Clouser minnow again, tied Mm -hmm. really big, like, Small would be two-aught hook, um, you know, and getting up to four-aught hook, saltwater hook, dumbbells to invert it, and um, preferred fiber, actually, for speed, I use what's called the SF fiber, Steve Ferrar fiber, and my go-to colors are going to be chartreuse on the top, white on the bottom, and then also... I've um, tied some where they're they're kind of like a root beer on top, white in the bottom, and that that would be to imitate the kelp greenling. But I've actually found statistically I've done better on just the chartreuse and white. Huh. To be honest with yeah. you, so yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool. Yeah, those are awesome. Yeah, but they they would be my two go tos. I would say for wings. Okay, perfect. And uh, you know we've talked about some different uh, tips today. Are there any other you know a couple of tips you think of that could help somebody get into their first uh, lean cod out there? Um, yeah, yeah, definitely, you know, moving down the jetty, um, not, you know, not beating the same spot, you know, if you're not catching a fish in that spot, Mm -hmm. just keep on moving down the rocks. Um, and as far as, you know, take two, three casts, um, you know, say 
systematically don't um don't also fish terribly long if you're wanting to march up and down the jetty just fish maybe you know 40 to 50 feet long and just work the water you know take two three casts move four or five rocks you know outward or inward take two three casts move outward and inward um obviously be really safe look around at your surroundings and then if you get one on and you you know you're fighting one don't try to put it on the reel give it that um you know hand strip with authority and then when you go to land it make sure your butt section of your rod is is not you know bent behind your shoulder because you don't want to explode your rod trying to land these things one really important piece too of equipment for wing cod i find is um it's you know kind of a spendy piece of equipment for a lot of people but if you have access to a boga grip it's really good because um what i do is i keep a boga grip on my I have a sling bag and I keep my boga right on a, a little D ring on my sling bag that it's easily accessible. And when I get one of those fish on, the first thing I start doing when I get that fish in close is I, I put the uh, boga grip. There's a little wrist, um, wrist strap. I put it around my wrist and that way you can't lose it. And then I'll, you know, safely navigate down toward the fish if, if the spot is given availability to do that. And then I'll, hold their face up to the surface when I get them in close enough. And, you know, usually their mouth's wide open and I'll mm-hmm. just throw that boga grip on their lower jaw. And as soon as you let go of that boga grip, that fish is not going to be, you know, you own that fish at that point. The other thing that's really important is if you plan on retention of these fish, they have a rule of 22 inches. I would tell you, don't even follow that rule. Follow your own rule of, of uh, no less than, say 25 26 inches because if you catch a 22 inch lingcod it's barely gonna have enough food for one person oh, if no you kidding. Catch, yeah you catch a 25 26 inch lingcod it could feed um two to three people sometimes so okay. you know as much as you know they're yeah. amazing fish to eat that you know try to have some personal ethics you know i remember even years ago a guy i know said you know, it seems like this limitless resource, but then if you everyone kept them all, there'd be none left. So, you yeah. know, if you're going to keep them, make sure they're worth your while to keep them. But they are phenomenal. Um, I would tell you, I'd never buy white flaky meat fish anymore. Yeah, so. that's right. That's right. And and the rockfish are good, good eating, eating as well, right? Yeah, they're very good too. I mean, you could treat them just the way you would treat like um, red snapper and fish like that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Cool. Uh, so yeah, those are good. Uh, definitely some awesome tips. Um, and then I guess we talked about resources. Yeah, there's just not a lot of resources. Are there any videos out there of people tying? I mean, I guess Jay has some other than Jay. Yeah, and then and out. then I think archiving way back on the Caddisfly. I know that they definitely um, okay. that Nate Stanberry Stansberry he ties a a very effective wing cod clouser type of pattern with that root beer in white. And uh, Jay definitely so. Okay. Yeah, it's very, very limited though out there. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's why that's why I have you on the show. I'm hoping this will be the uh, this will be kind of the ultimate resource here. You yeah, audio wise. So, and actually, we we um, at Orvis have a lot of flies stocked um, that would work for these fish because we stock a lot of you know, big predatory streamer flies, and a lot of them were like, "Oh, this would work for lingcod too." And uh, and I've actually you know tested some of them out and caught fish on them i i prefer to tie my own flies just because i enjoy it but uh but as far as you know we sell a ton of stuff that would work for these fish yeah. if people limited in their tying abilities 
Cool, cool. Yeah, and we're not going to, we didn't get too much into the Orvis thing. I've obviously, I've had Tom Rosenbauer on and Orvis comes up quite a bit, you know, you, know, yeah. you guys are obviously leading the, leading the way in a lot of things. Um, but anything else, um, you know, uh, you want to hit on that, that we may have missed today to help somebody get into some fish? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, stereotypical times for big lings, um, there it's supposed to be, I would say anything from February, March, April, um, I would tell you that I've had some of my best success when it doesn't matter. You know, I yeah. caught one of my biggest lings in September a few years ago, and then all but two, three days later, they closed bottom fishing, which was really a bummer. But, uh, but you know, a few years ago, I caught my best ling I've ever caught off the jetty in, in the fall. But, you know, as far as the late winter into the spring that's the stereotypical time where you get they say big lanes coming into the jetties to uh spawn mm. that being said it, it is you know some people say to leave those big females alone as far as keeping them you know because you could potentially catch a really big right. fish in the spring time. um then the conditions are a lot more dicey so you know when doing this fishing you have to really you know, put your tides in the uh, equation. Another um, thing that's really important to look at that we didn't touch into too much. We talked about it briefly, but as far as swells, like you, when you look at tides, you also, you know, be really wise to bookmark a, um, a like swell site. So okay. when I'm looking at tides, I actually also look at literally a surfing website where it tells you that what the swell size is going to be at the Oregon coast. And right. It's a, uh, site that literally will tell you northern oregon central oregon and southern oregon swell conditions and with that i find with the jetty any typically you know it, it's hard to figure out because swell frequency as far as how how far the swells are apart with the swell size influences the way they come through the jetty but i find when they say seven feet or bigger it's usually um pick something else to do for the day okay. and then under seven feet usually it's pretty good in the summertime, the swells are usually pretty tame. Usually yeah. late spring, summer, into the fall, the swells are usually a lot more, you know, um, safer. But in that big fish time of the year, in that, you know, February, March, April, you want to really be paying attention to the swells because one day it could be safe as can be, and the next day it could be, you know, very dangerous out there. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, yeah. I, I know you got to get out of here pretty quick. So I just had a couple more before I let you go. And the one fun one I've been having asking uh, here lately is on music. Do you have any, uh, you know, favorite band or type of music you like to listen to? Um, you know, God, that's a tough one for me because I really like a lot, a lot yeah. of music. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what's funny to say is, um, when I'm fishing, I like anything from, uh, from like very old classic, you know, Bob Marley, mm -hmm. uh, reggae to, to even, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of rap music. I like to, oh, so. yeah. right on <laughs> varied, you know, gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I'm not sure if I've had a Bob Marley, uh, song I'll put, I'll put a, uh, I'll find my favorite, uh, or do you have a favorite, uh, Bob Marley? Uh, no, no. I mean, anything. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say literally something from that, that, you know, the classic album legend, because yeah. you know, who yeah. doesn't, who doesn't feel happy when they hear that kind of stuff? I know yeah. I'm, that's the thing. Hopefully somebody can press play right now while they're listening and then they can get some Bob Marley in the background and exactly. uh, that'll brighten up their day <laughs> for sure. Okay. Well, we, we, we definitely did hit on everything. I think, um, maybe down the line, um, you know, we can get you back on and talk about some other stuff, but, uh, you know, in the next six to 12 months, anything, uh, you want to let us know what's going on new for you or, you know, Orvis or anything else? Um, yeah, actually, I mean, 
since your uh, you know main main focus is steelhead, um, we have this line of uh, spade and switch rods coming out in the fall called the Mission okay. line, and we we actually had them um, at the Sandy River Spay Clave as an introduction, and a lot of really reputable spay casters were very impressed. They they had really good things to say yep. about the rods, so we're really excited to have those coming in and you know they're going to have all the latest technology and then we've also developed an entire two-hand fly line series called the mission lines to you know one match the rods but also just as far as they're really phenomenal tapers where they're we're going to have everything from short compressed heads that are really popular nowadays to longer heads and scandy heads and Mm -hmm. um Really, you know, just good modern fly lines and really killer line of rods that's about to come out. So people, you know, should be really excited to see there this stuff. Coming. Yeah, and by the time, yeah, this this those might be available by the time this comes out. And yeah, Tom Rosenbauer back on his episode, I think I asked him what Orvis does best, and you know, and he said rods. You know, but without a doubt, fly rods are what you guys do best. So so this will yeah. be good. this will be yeah, good we to have- see. Yeah. Yeah, we have a really awesome team over in Vermont doing doing some pretty wonderful things with the rods nowadays. That's cool. All right, so uh, so basically, yeah, the Portland Fly Shop. If they want to find you, or they can the the email um, send you email at steelheadmars at yahoo dot com. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, steelheadmars at yahoo dot com, and then also um, there is the off of Facebook. I have the Facebook link to the. Um, Brian Mars Fly Fishing Oregon blog as well. Okay, perfect. All right, Brian, well, thanks for coming on and sharing. This was an awesome episode. I mean, you definitely dug into stuff, and I know when I started out, I had a bunch of questions. A lot of them I didn't even have to look at because we just kind of, uh, you know, you covered it all, you, <laughs> yeah, you covered it all as, <laughs> as we went. So, no, I appreciate you coming on, and I definitely will uh, follow up with you and maybe get out there on the jetty with you sometime. We can, uh, Yeah, let's do it, find, without a doubt. Yeah, find some, find some fish. So, all right, man, we'll, we'll catch you later. All right, thank you for having me there. All right, see ya. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash Mars. That's M-A-R-Z. Uh, are you interested in heading out on a uh, fly fishing trip, a host trip with me and some of uh, a few of the guests from the podcast? We'll be heading out to uh, one of the big lodges and uh, heading out to Alaska actually this next year. So if you're interested in checking this out, if you'd want to get in on pretty much what I think is going to be a trip of a lifetime, uh, go to wetflyswing.com slash destination and uh, you can check it out there. Or you can just send me an email uh, directly at dave at wetflyswing.com and I would love to have you along if you're interested. Uh, yeah, thanks again for che- uh, stopping by and check out the show today. Looking forward to catching up this soon and hope to maybe see you online or maybe on uh, an Alaskan fishing trip. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.